This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Hello, welcome to Wireless Books on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM. And this is the Athenaeum Libraries Programme. And I have some... Very sad news for for listeners, Beth is not well today, so it's only going to be me talking, so um, bear with as they say. Now I'm going to start with talking about our new books. Beth is going to be very annoyed because I've actually got um, a book, a Scandi book, which she loves, and it's um, The Nightman, and it's by John Le Hoist, and um, his character... Wisting, spelled W-I-S-T-I-N-G, and it's become a television series, and this is the fifth book in the series, and I think that we have them all. And it starts pretty excitingly. Um, This is a quiet town, and a lady is going, making her way to work and it's a foggy morning and as she's carefully picking her way through the fog she sees something which isn't she hasn't noticed before and so she she picks her way over to it and it's oh, horrible, it's a severed head on, placed on a stake and Whistling is brought in to um, investigate this crime and it sounds hideous enough, but it's actually even worse because the victim is a young child, no, a young, um, a young girl. Um, he thinks that she's about twelve in his original assessment, and it just um, the whole crime thing starts to spiral out. Um, another severed head is put on display. Um, this quiet little town turns out to be. Uh, run by crime bosses and um, by crime bosses it's all sorts of, there's drugs um, there's um, people smuggling I mean, basically um, what you got they've got it so um, it's really and um, it's organised crime um, neo-Nazis yes um, like I say if you name it they've got it and I think Beth would really enjoy this, but unfortunately she is ill. She has fever and um, and aches, so yes, not good. Now, the next one I've got is by, now I can never pronounce his name, Louis de Bernares, and he's most known for writing Captain Corelli's... <laughs> Captain Corelli's uh, Mandolin. <laughs> he actually wrote um, another book, um, The War of Don Emmanuel's Nether Parts, and I actually was going to say Captain Corelli's Underpants. Isn't that terrible of me? No, it's Captain Corelli's Mandarin. Now, he his most recent books have been um, a three-part trilogy about pilots from the First World War through into the Second World War and upwards. And this is the third one in it, and it's called The Autumn of the Ace. And the ace in question is um, Daniel Pitt, 
So he was a fighter pilot in the First World War, and he becomes an espionage spy and um, agent for SOE. I don't really know what SOE is. I don't think I've heard of that acronym before, but um, I'm hopeless at acronyms. And so he's he's working as a spy in the second, but also flying. And so at the end of the war, things... He's a man who thrives in the wartime environment but finds peace difficult. And so we sort of start at the end of the Second World War and he's trying to cope with it. And his his son Bertie actually was old enough to um, also fight in the Second World War. And it's really about the relationship between these two men and all the complicated um, relationships that Daniel has accrued in the previous two uh, novels. So um, anybody who's read the previous um, ones will be will be happy happy with this, and I think it's an easy read because it's a lot of very short chapters. I always find books with short chapters um, quite quite pleasant to read because you can pick them up and and read for you know read a chapter and put it down again, and it's it's easier to keep track of, in my opinion. And the next one I've got is A Gentle Radical by Gareth Hughes, and it's the life of Jeanette Fitzsimmons, who was the leader, or the co-leader of the Green Party for a very, very long time. Um, She, she's, well, she was, she started off as a member of the Values Party. Most people will be too young to remember the Values Party, but it was sort of the precursor to the Greens. And Gareth Hughes um, was is an ex um, Greens MP, and so he knows um, or knew Jeanette Fitzsimmons very well as as a colleague and a friend. The Green Party was always very collegial and um, fostered interpersonal relationships between their members, and they also had. Moments of sadness, like their other um, Ron Donald dying, that was a shock to everybody. And so, this has got very good reviews, and people have enjoyed reading about a woman who actually played a very large part in New Zealand, and but always managed to to be pleasant. I think that's that's an achievement, isn't it? And. My next one is by Peter May, A Winter Grave. And this is a crime novel. Um, a body is found frozen on the top of a mountain and and on a remote island off the coast of Scotland. And a detective goes out to, um, well, to investigate the crime. And he... But he also has a personal motive because his, da- his estranged daughter lives on the island. So he, he's gone out there to, to look into the death and and to see um, if he can repair the relationship with his daughter. Um, the detective's name is Brody, and the dead man was an investigative reporter, George Younger, who had been missing for three months. And... The interesting thing about this book that I don't think I've ever seen anyone do this before, it's set in the year 2051, 
when warnings of a climate catastrophe have been ignored. So the winter grave is it's more than just um, the grave of, of the dead man. It's sort of a testament about what's happened with, with the planet. And, yes, yeah, so he's, he's imagining what the world would be like. There's, um, I mean, there's lots of displaced people. Um, let's see, um, Bangladesh is gone because, of course, Bangladesh notoriously floods a lot because it's um, a very low level, sea level, essentially. And, yeah, it's... And Peter May, he he's written a lot of books and he's actually really good about interpersonal relationships. And I think this is going to be very popular. And like I say, I think it's going to be very popular. Now, I've, I've rattled. I haven't got Beth to interrupt me and um, hold me up, so I've just rattled through. So I'm just going to go for a quick sting, and then uh, we'll go go on to the second part of the program. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Welcome back. This is Wireless Books on Otago Access Radio. And last time we met, I was talking about one of the books I had out from the public library um, by a man called Graham Donald called The Mysteries of History. And he's talking... And I talked about Joan of Arc and a little bit about Robin Hood. And... Another thing he talked about, which I found quite fascinating, was the whole subject of of who got to America first. Now, every school child knows, or at least every school child of my age knew, that Columbus sailed the ocean blue and he was the first European to make it to America. But of course, that's... For a start, he didn't even step... He never stepped on the mainland of America. He only made his way to the West Indies. And it's claimed that, um, and also how America got the name America is a bit of a mystery, because Columbus, uh, one of his um, backers, was a man called Americano Vespacui, and who was a Florentine explorer who, who also made it to America. But traditionally, you don't name um, geographical items for your first name. Like um, the Hudson River is named after Henry Hudson, and it's not the Henry River, it's the Hudson. And, of course, we now know that the Vikings got there earlier, and, of course, the Native Americans proved that other people got there there as well but if you just want to link it to the Europeans apart from the Vikings the the person who most likely who did it was who he backed um, a, an exploration he's a wealthy um, man from Boston, from Bristol at least and his name was Robert Ameriki or Americ 
and he sponsored the voyages of a man called John Colbert who and provided a ship called Matthew. And so John Colbert reached Labrador on May 1497. So it, um, he beat um, Columbus um, by about two years. And Colbert explored the North American coastline from Nova Scotia to New Finland. And in the time-honoured tradition, no doubt applied the form of his sponsor's surname to the land. So why did the Americans embrace Columbus as the man who, who found them? Well, it's really um, it's to do with the American Revolution. Because after the war... You might either want to call it the War of Independence or the American Revolution, depending on your point of view. Um, after they won the war, the Americans wanted to to dis- disparage and wipe out the the British influence on them, and so they they did all sorts of um, things like they stopped using the word master and replaced it with a Dutch derived um, name called boss, and. S- and so they they went for Columbus instead of John Colbert, and so they changed. The, they referred to their country as the territory of Columbus or Columbia, and that's the name of the District of Columbia, which is um, the land set aside for the capital. So that's why Washington D.C. and they. The new Congress promoted Columbus as a man who sailed west in an effort to shrug off the old world order and, like their own fledging nation, sought an independent future. And so everything, they then Columbified everything. King's College in New York, which was founded by Royal Charter by George II in 1754, was renamed Columbia University. And after the war... How Columbia by Joseph Hopkinson became the country's de facto national anthem. And and so and then all these groups came up, the Sons of Columbus and whatnot, and um, the Catholic Order of the Knights of Columbus. And and they established the twelfth of October as Columbus Day. Um, unfortunately for them it's become a bit embarrassing because of course um, Christopher Columbus actually has a pretty checkered, checkered um, history. I mean, there's not only the fact that he never really landed on the, in America, there's also the fact of his appalling treatment of the native Indians. Um, when he landed in one of the islands, they had about half a million people there, and essentially they were decimated 10 years later. Um, they died, they were killed, died of illnesses or were sent tracked off as slaves. And so it's become more and more embarrassing that the great Columbus is, has got severe feet of clay, whereas um, John Colbert um, actually wasn't that bad. They should, have, they should have stuck with the truth. Now, the next story... I want to say, oh, this is very complicated and fascinating. It's about the Great Fire of Chicago. Now, the uh, the folk legend is that the Great Fire of Chicago was started by a cow kicking um, over a lamp in the barn of Catherine. 
Catherine O'Leary's and setting the place alight and that started the whole thing and was actually made up by a journalist and um, she was picked on as a a scapegoat because she was Catholic. Now, there was a fire that did break out in the barn at the rear, rear of her property but the fire marshals got it under control and... And it didn't start the fire at all. In fact, the best evidence of that is the fact that the farm actually survived the Great Fire of Chicago. So the fact that it was there at the end is pretty good um, indication that it didn't start the fire. And I'm going to be reading out great sequence of this because it's quite complicated. History books focused on the Great Fire of Chicago and it left 300 people dead, over 10,000 homeless, and a clean-up bill of $222 million, which is about $4.5 billion in today's money. So it was a great fire, of course. But there is little mention of the fact that it was not the only fire in the area of the American Great Lakes that night. The townships of Port Huron and White Rock which were both on the southern end of Lake Huron, were pretty much wiped out the same night, as were those of Holland and Manstee on Lake Michigan. Across the lake from Manstee in Holland was the site of a fire so massive that it dwarfed all the others put together, the largely forgotten fire of Pestigo, which killed about 2,500 people destroyed a dozen surrounding villages and over 1.5 million acres of woodland. That's a big fire. It was unquestionably the worst fire in American history. So how did this get overshadowed by the Chicago fire? At its peak, the Pestigo fire presented the awesome sight of a towering wall of flame across a five-mile front with temperatures exceeding 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and reached speeds of over 100 miles per hour. So a firewall of five miles, that is terrifying. Trains were melted when they where they stood and buildings and their fleeing occupants were burned before the fire had even reached them. As was the case across the waters in Chicago, the pest Pestigo event was marked by multiple and diverse fires which erupted at random across a wide area and left the people at a loss as to the direction in which to flee. Many who sought sanctuaries in the nearby rivers and lakes either drowned or died of hypothermia. And subsequent study of that fire and its prevailing conditions and the fire tornadoes it created um, they called it the Pestigo paradigm and it was the blueprint of how to reproduce the holocaustic conditions that wiped out. Um, it was used by the US Air Force and the British Bomber Command to generate the firestorms in the Second World War and century bombing of Dresden and Tokyo. Um, so, And that inflicted death tolls to dwarf those of Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. So... It's been, so what started the fire, and I think it wasn't known at the time, but they think it actually was the effects of a, of a comet. 
And usually when comets land, by the time they land, they're very cold. But in the correct conditions, they can cause these fires. And this one was coming in low. So it didn't come down at a, what's the word? It was going down low and it, it broke up into all these little fireballs and they just spread fire all over the place. They've mapped all the fires and it was just a, a concise pattern. And it was um, Bella's Comet, which broke up over the area that night. Um, it was it was first uh, mooted in 1883, the Comet Theory, but it was dismissed because the man who put forward the theory, um, Ignatius Donnelly, who was a US congressman and amateur scientist, was widely perceived with some just justification as a bit of a crank. But in his favour, there were countless witness reports of balls of fire falling from the sky that night and spontaneous ground fire um, ignitions of blue flame. Um, and that was consistent with the methane that can be found in comets and comet debris. debris. And so in Another man, um, Robert Wood, has taken up this um, this old theory in 2004 and presented his conclusion to the American Institute of Aeronautics, and I think most people now accept it. So, yeah, so, so it was caused by a comet, and there's been other instances of this happening in other parts of the world. Um, in Turkey in 2013, um, in the forest adjacent to a town of Kupek, and a Peruvian city of Costco um, in August 2011. So, so comets are more scary than you'd think. Now, there's a little addendum to this, and it's about the O'Learys, because Catherine O'Leary um, was it was claimed that her she was drunk and that she was was milking the cow roughly and the cow kicked over the lamp and it caused the fire, which is all rubbish. But she just, everybody wanted to believe it and it made her life a misery. And in fact, um, her name has been posthumously cleared by the city of Chicago and um, in about 2007... Oh no, sorry, 1997, they held a belated ceremony to exonerate her. And in 1893, the journalist who made it up actually admitted that he had made it up. But meanwhile, because it had made their life so unbearably, and they were routinely beset by reporters and other more hostile mobs, um, they decamped to the city's notorious south side to avoid further prosecution or persecution. And in one of those strange twists of history, this enforced exile provided the making of the O'Leary family's fortunes and laid the foundations for Chicago's reputation in the field of organised crime. Within a few years of the family's move, her son James was running errands for the local bookmakers and organising the violent extraction of monies due from punters reluctant to keep up their payments. And by the opening of the 1900s, Big Jim O'Leary had carved out his empire of illegal gambling and racketeering, and he was a multi-millionaire. <laughs> yeah, strange twists of history. 
and he was one of the city's richest celebrities. Because, of course, it's odd. They just loved these gangster things. People were obsessed with gangsters, and they were really, they were celebrities. And he formed a partnership with the syndicate boss, Jimmy Toro, which took him to greater heights and set up Chicago as the ideal stage into which would walk Turo's lieutenant Al Capone, which is a name we still know. So famous was Al Capone. So if um, Mrs O'Leary hadn't had that falsehood about her cow kicking over the lamp and setting off the great fire of Chicago, um, little Jimmy O'Leary probably would have been just a dirt poor farmer um, with a milk round. Um, it's isn't life strange? This and I, I and I thought this. I'm sorry to go on about it so much, but I I found it fascinating. First of all, I didn't know that comets could do that, and it's blooming terrifying. Um, hopefully, no comets comets do that to us, because um, yikes! Yeah, watch your options. Jump in the harbour and cross your fingers. And secondly, I never knew that her son went on to become a famous Chicago gangster. In fact, really, I should do a bit of a research from them. There's bound to be more colourful stories. And, yeah, so the mysteries of history indeed. In fact, that's what I find history fascinating because if the things that you think you know are usually wrong and the correct story is usually a million times more fascinating. And so um, I think it's much more interesting that a, a comet started the Great Fire of Chicago and the rest of um, the Great Lakes areas than uh, a, a cow kicking over a lamp, which is kind of a bit silly. Anyway, that's probably enough from me. And sorry for being such a gas bag. And hopefully Beth will be back to interrupt me next time. In the meantime... All I can say is happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.